This episode of Dark Pages from the Old Attic contains the subject of war along with sound effects of guns. If this can be a trigger for you, listen with discretion. Hello and welcome to Dark Pages from the Old Attic. I'm Clara and this is Ella. Hello, dear audience. Welcome back for another ghost-filled episode. Today we have a rather special story, but before we get to that, we also have a little something extra. What? Oh man, you found them? It was supposed to be a surprise for you, Clara. Uh, the photo? What's that? Since we had anniversary last time, I thought we needed an upgrade for the studio. And by studio, you mean an old attic. It's literally in the title. Dark pages from the old studio attic. Are those chairs? You're as sharp as they come, Clara. Now we don't have to sit in these boxes anymore. Away you go. There. Perfect. Hmm. This is great. Now our setup looks 2% more professional. I would say 15. And the comfort level is raised with a staggering 60%. Hmm. You're right. Great idea. Hopefully my surprise won't paid in comparison to this revolution in comfort. What? You also have a surprise? Yeah, as I was saying. I have a little something I found while sorting the stories. Ooh, what? A photo. Look at this. Hmm. Oh, is that Agnes? Young Agnes. She looks so... so cheerful. Oh my, she even has her arm around one of the others. The Agnes I knew would never have so much physical contact with other people. Mm, that person was called Grig, according to the backside text. Those behind them were Greg, Hilde and Stefano. Looks like they were at some kind of camp thing. So she had friends? Wait, how old is this picture? She must have been around our age when it was taken. It says 65 on the backside. I think Agnes was from 45. So, yeah, a little younger than us. And here we are, in an old attic, while she was off camping in Norway. Camping is great and all, but Clara, nothing beats a good ghost story found in this old studio attic. True, I'll let you get to it. What's today's story called? Today's story is called Company in the Mud. This story was recorded on the 14th of June, 1976, as part of an interview with James Snitterfield for the French newspaper Le Telegram Paranormal. Agnes has given it the code L4A. Alright, so this story isn't my own. It comes from my dad. He was in the Great War, but he never spoke much about it. In fact, he never did. Whenever any of us asked about it, he always said something like, There was a war, and I was in it. And that would be the end of it. We could only imagine what had happened to his arm, or his face for that matter. But he had survived, and I suppose we should all be content with that. 
He did tell one story, though. It was in the late 41. I had enlisted and was going to Africa like so many others at that time. It was the last day I had with my family, and during the evening, despite the darkening sky, my dad suggested a walk. As we went down the lanes and the path of my childhood, a distant thunderstorm rolled near. It clearly affected the old man, and he grew increasingly quiet. When the rain came, we sought shelter in a nearby shed, and soon the sky was flashing with lightning and the thunder seemed to pound the air around us. For a while I was captivated by the spectacle outside, but when I looked back at my dad, something about him had changed. It was as though I saw no longer the husband and father of four grown children, but rather the fellow who had sat in the trenches more than 20 years ago. That's when he turned to me and his eyes were not of my dad, but of a soldier. Jamie, he said, there's no greater terror in this world than war. I was unsure what to say, though I had yet to see any action beyond training, I felt I had a rather good idea of what was coming. Did I ever tell you about my first proper battle? He then said. I shook my head. He never told me about any of his battles, and I doubted he forgot. He looked out of the door at the drenched field beyond, and I could see his shoulders move with his breath. I waited, and finally he spoke. This is what I remember him saying. It was the 1st of July back in 16, and even though my division was in reserve for the actions that day, my battalion, the 6th Loyal Warwicks, along with the 8th, had been detailed to attack with the 4th Division. Everyone was marched up to their starting lines, waiting for the signal to go over the top. I remember looking at those around me with detachment I felt numbly proud of at that time. Many were nervous, terrified, others resigned or simply lost. Again, I felt this perverse pride at, I thought, being the only one amongst all of these men who felt no fear. Because I knew I was already dead, you see. I'm not sure when I realized this, but when I stood in the forward trench, waiting for the whistle, I was sure. I didn't fear the bullets, but I was determined to last as long as possible to experience as much as I could of what I thought would be a day of such spectacle, it would dwarf any life ever lived. I wanted to see it, feel it, hear it, and smell it. I wanted all of my senses to take it in, like a camera hungrily devouring the scene in front of it. And then I wanted to die in a tremendous way, in such a way people would never believe it unless they had witnessed it. That was my plan for the day, for the rest of my life, I suppose. And the sunrise had been so beautiful, I needed never see another. A rumble shook the ground beneath our feet. Off to the south, a great plum of dirt rose many times taller than the church at home. Time went by, maybe five minutes or more, and then more of the mines were set off further south. Moments later, the whistle sounded and up we went up and over, and it felt like the whole world turned against us. The German machine gunners hadn't been silenced, and even the very ground tried to halt our advance. It was so torn that at times it was difficult to balance yourself, 
and it felt frustrating having to watch your every step. I wanted to look up and see men around me and the men in front of us, hidden behind the flashes of their guns. I wanted to see the plain sky contrast the chaos below, but I had to look down to keep moving. As it turned out, the shelling had done a terrible job at cutting the wires, and up ahead I saw our lads pushing through one of the few gaps. The enemy fire was horrific in that spot, and many failed to clog the place with their bodies. Somehow, enough of us got through anyway, and the enemy trench was so close we could throw a grenade in there. And then, the trench was annihilated. Not by us, but by an explosion that heaved the whole place into the air. The blast knocked us right off our feet. I assume it was one of our minds late to go off and cursed whoever responsible. Had it gone off a little later, we would have gone with it. Not the way I wanted to go, but as it was, we were able to take the enemy position, or what was left of it. What followed were hours and hours of advancing through the broken ground. Broken buildings, broken trees, broken bodies, broken everything. And always there was the snapping of the bullets and the rattle of machine guns and the whizzing of shells. And all the time the lads died around me and the wounded clinging on instead of accepting the inevitable with some amount of grace. In the afternoon we were halted and then the enemy opened up on our flanks and I thought my moment had come. I was ready. Bayonet fixed. Rounds loaded ready to charge with what remained of our battalion. But instead, we retreated. First we were back in the captured trenches, but the enemy passed on, and my section routed. I was with a handful others from another battalion at this point, and on our way back we took shelter in a deep crater as machine gun fire raked the land around us. I was bitter at the situation. Every chance of glory was lost for the day. Mortars joined the machine gunners, the detonations throwing dirt and debris down at us in our crater. I idly wondered what the odds of a shell hitting the exact same spot was, but figured none of us would know anyway if it did happen. Then a few of the fellows decided to make a break for it. I considered joining them, but for some reason I stayed put with the country lad from the 8th division. The others left their equipment behind and crawled to the lip of the crater then rose to make that dash. As soon as they showed themselves, a hail of bullets swept them from behind. Two tumbled limply back inside the crater, while one struggled to get through the loose dirt. I saw his shoulders heave with effort, then dropped as his uniform flapped from the impacts of bullets. He sank back on the slope, then slid and tumbled the last way down. Later the other lad tried to crawl over the top of his stomach and he made it far enough for only his legs to be visible. But then came the rattle of guns and he never moved further. So I assumed he was gone. I stayed where I was and when night came I ate my rations and prepared to sneak to our trench. But as I crawled to the edge of the crater I hesitated. It was a dark night with an almost new moon, but the occasional flash of shells bursting cast a stark light and long shadows over no man's land around me. And not only did I think of the enemy behind me, but also our own lads in front of me, 
Any one of them might shoot at a movement beyond their trench. I hated the idea of a single crack in the dark and another body on the broken ground. Eventually, I slid back down and huddled up. I waited for another offensive to wash over my crater and relieve me. But though I heard plenty of thunder to the south, this section of the front was still for days. Thanks to my former fellows, I had plenty of rations. And soon, they even provided company, with rats come to join the feast. I didn't bother them, though I hated the sound and sight of their writhing bodies. The stench was another matter entirely, and I had little rest as days and nights bled together in a strange wash of light and darkness. The bodies got worse by the day, and to my increasing dismay, one kept his eyes so he could stare at me no matter how I positioned myself in the crater. I would doze off and come back to find he seemed to have moved ever so slightly, as if to get a better view of me. In the night, his eyes glittered in the light of the stars and the shells. I didn't really sleep. The constant threat of becoming part of the rat feast drove me to stay alert. And the slightest sound from beyond my tiny world brought the anticipation of enemies infiltrating, creeping towards my shelter. I would ready my rifle, but no one ever came. I began to fancy this small part of the world had been blown clean off, leaving me isolated and adrift. Then things began to change. It was night and I was counting the stars in an attempt to keep my grinding brain going. When all of the sudden, there was a rush, and the rats scurried up and out of the crater. I turned my gaze away from the heavens to watch them in puzzlement as they beat their retreat. Then I noticed what might have spooked them. In the middle of the crater, a few feet away from me, sat one of the lads with his face buried in his gnarled and corrupted hands. He had no eyes, but still Tears formed glistering bands down his sunken cheeks. A raspy sob left his ragged body. And then the soldier next to him sat up as well and put an arm around his shoulder. They sat like that forever. One gentle shaking from the sobbing and the other leaning gently against him. One thumb stroking his shoulder over and over. They paid me no heed, and for that I was thankful. I sat still, and perhaps they thought of me as one of them. Perhaps I was accidentally witness to a secret world ever kept from the eyes of the living. I knew not, and I dared not to let my presence be known. Slowly the darkness lifted as dawn approached, the grey creeping back into the world and the stars dimming above. That was when the lad who still had his eyes, got up as well. Standing tall in his tattered, muddy uniform, he turned his yellowing eyes to the edge of the crater. Tears of corruption ran down his stretched face as well. And when he reached out a hand to the sitting soldiers, they took it in turn and rose to their feet. One by one, they filed past me and began to climb up the slope 
going slowly and carefully like old men, their bony hands clawing at the wet soil. The soldier with the eyes went last, looking up at his ascending fellows first, then glancing at me as if expecting me to join them. When I remained still, he held out a rotten hand to me. I remember the ring on his finger, shining brightly and unspoiled, as if the war had failed to touch it. I finally managed to find my voice, hoarse as it was from days of disuse. I don't belong with you, I said. He inclined his head slowly, and a twitch around his eye suggested a blink, if only he had had any eyelids left. Eventually he turned away from me and climbed up with the others. Watching them go caused me a great deal of sadness, as I now knew I would have none but myself for company. The three soldiers made it to the rim of the crater, much reminiscence of their former climb, only this time they faced the enemy trenches. As they stood up and as they rose, the golden light of dawn struck their faces and filled the empty eye sockets. Tears were gleaming on their cheeks like flowing gold and fire, their tattered uniforms billowing on their bony frames. And then came the stark rattle of gun and bullets ripped through their soft bodies and tore the arm clean of one and the jaw of another. Back they fell and I scurried out of the way as their bodies slid and tumbled down to the bottom of the crater, coming to rest in a cruel heap. Two yellowing eyes came to rest upon me and I sank back down. Despite my growing hunger, I felt unable to eat a single bite that day. I opened some of the rations, but let it sit out in the gentle drizzle. The sadness of their departure had not lessened by their return. If anything, I felt my innards twist with increasing anguish at the sight of the poor lads. In the afternoon, in an attempt to distract my idle hands, I collected bits and broken wire from around the hole and began to laboriously fashion them with no intention in mind. I cut myself while forcing the stiff metal into new shapes, and so absorbed was I that when I looked down on the rusty cross in my trembling hands, the sky was once again dark under the thick clouds. The air was heavy with the dampness and stench of rot and corruption, and as I rose to my knees and crawled towards the heaped bodies, I felt a charge as if a thunderstorm was brewing. The hair on my neck stood up as I leaned forward and placed a cross on the chest of the watching soldier. Those eyes glittered in the glare of a distant flare. For a moment I considered resting his hands on the Lord's symbol, but in the end a revulsion at the thought of grasping his decaying flesh turned me away and I sat back down. And I wept because it was all I could do for him. How deep was my crater? How steep its sides? These questions came to me when I opened my eyes and found I must finally have drifted off into a dreamless sleep. It was still dark and though it was cooler now, the air was as charged as before. Even more now than ever. But it wasn't an electric one or quite like the one that precedes a thunderstorm. 
It was more like if you went into a crowded hall and stuffed your ears with cotton and shut your eyes tight, you would still feel the people around you, despite neither seeing nor hearing them. It was a feeling you would find entirely absent in an empty room. That was the feeling I had at the bottom of my crater, though my only company were the dead. Yet it wasn't the feeling that preoccupied me. It was the depth of the crater and the steepness of its slopes. Were they steeper than before? Was the crater deeper than when the three soldiers had climbed up to meet the dawn? I looked up and felt more like sitting at the bottom of a well than ever. The sky seemed narrow, and as I watched, I saw the stars wink out of existence. It was as though the sky was contracting, like an eye exposed to the bright light, and I felt myself sink, though my boots didn't seem to slip deeper into the mud. Then loose dirt began rolling down the slopes towards me, growing to a cascade as I realized the earth around me was moving. The sides of the crater were closing in, the opposite lips reaching to meet. Finally, I shook myself out of my stupor and dug my hands into the soft slope, clawing my way up. But the slope was so steep that I immediately fell on my stomach and slid down to join the sinking corpses in the panicked tangle of limbs. I frantically kicked myself free and got back on the slope, ripping my foot out of the grasp of a grabbing rotten hand. I tried to stick to the mud as not to slide back, but when I got a few feet from the edge, I simply couldn't make any further progress. Every foothold gave way under my weight, every handhold became nothing but balls of mud in my hands. I did not slide, but that mattered little, for the walls were closing in and I was stuck as a fly. The sky narrowed rapidly and my entire being filled with the fear of the darkness that would follow when the last star vanished. I pushed with my elbows, gaining inches only to lose them again a frantic heartbeat later. Earth was rushing down around me, the sound deafening in the final moments before the ground would swallow me up. And then I felt a hand grab my ankle. Looking back into the dark pit below me, I saw two yellow eyes stare back at me. The grip tightened around my leg like an iron vice, and then I felt myself being pushed up with tremendous force. I had to flail desperately to stay on the slope, and my hands grabbed the roots of a tree blown away long ago. I pulled, heaving myself up as my hand pushed me on my way. I got a hold of some broken wire and, though it cut my hands, I pulled on it to haul myself out of the closing soil. The grasp on my ankle lifted and I rolled over on my back, drinking the sight of the endless night sky with greedy eyes. Above the sound of the shifting earth, I heard the distant rattle of machine gun set against a deep rumble of far-off guns. The air was still and cool and I sucked in as much as my chest could hold. Then something tapped me on my boot. I sat up. The soldier with the eyes was sinking, already buried to the chin. Both arms stretched out towards me. For a moment I wanted to reach out and take a hold of his hands, but he pulled them away, one hand gingerly picking at the other. I saw he was removing the ring from his finger and when he held it out to me, I took it without a word. 
Moments later, the earth had pulled him under, leaving nothing behind but a strangely clear spot on the ground. I managed to crawl back to our lines and thankfully no one shot at me as I came in. They took me away from the front, fed me, tended my injuries, which were, unfortunately, not enough to send me back to Blighty. Sleep was probably the best of it all. I was under for a couple of days, drifting in and out of dreams and soothing darkness. When at last I was returned to duty, I had come to the conclusion that what I had seen in the crater was delusions born from immense fatigue. My story wasn't unique. Other soldiers had seen the dead rise during the delirious nights. But then I was issued a new and as of yet lice-free uniform. And among the meager possessions taken from the old one, I found something that did not belong to me. A band of polished silver with names engraved on the inside. Thomas and Elizabeth. I still remember those names. Once I had recovered my faculties, I made sure the ring was sent home with proper instructions for its return to its rightful owner. That was what I had promised, wasn't it not? Later that day, I was back with my battalion and found there was hardly anyone left of it. It wasn't really a battalion at all anymore, and as a result, it took a while before we would see action again. When we finally did, I had made a vow. I would see the whole damned thing through, and I would never fire another shot at a living thing ever again. And that was the end of my dad's story. The thunderstorm had passed and we sat in the dripping dark. I didn't know at the time why he told it to me then and there, but I carried it with me to my own war, from Cairo to Rome, and maybe it carried me through. Do you remember the sweet and innocent times on this podcast when the stories were just about ghosts having a dance-off on the ice? You mean the ghost that tried to drown Maya? So innocent. Well, we don't really know if that was the motive. Maybe the ghost was just lonely and missing its dance partner. Don't be so quick to judge a ghost, Clara. Well, they do seem to be quite lonely. But you're right. The last few stories have been a bit dark. How about I find a more light-hearted story for next time? Hmm, yeah. Maybe a good idea. A nice and chill one, so that the one after that will hit even harder. Alright, then join us next time for the story The Village of Bones. What? That doesn't sound any chill at all. I'm kidding. We'll save that one for later. Now we have something to look forward to, I guess. Yes. So, join us in two weeks for the next episode of Dark Pages from the Old Attic. Old Studio Attic? No. Have a spooky week, and see you next time for a hopefully chill ghost story. Bye. Maybe we should also get a table for the microphone? Yes. And why stop there? We need a coffee table and a machine.
Today's episode of Dark Pages from the Old Attic was written and voiced by Zoe and Vicky Suvang. We try to release a new episode every other Friday, and you can head over to our Instagram at Dark Pages Podcast for updates, teasers, and illustrations for each episode. If you wish to support us, give us a rating and review on the platform you're listening to the podcast. And don't let your friends miss out on the spooky times. You can contact us on our Instagram or our mail, darkpagespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you in the next episode.